Hello, everyone, and welcome to the live recording of the Garforth Education Podcast. My name is Dr. Catherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and I am also the host of the Right to Read Initiative. Today's episode, I didn't change it on the title slide, but we'll be focusing on the consensus of reading instruction. And it is the third episode of the Garforth Education Podcast. We are a very new podcast. So any love that you can share for us on social media is greatly appreciated because the goal is to have this podcast and its episodes shared far and wide. So I created this podcast because I feel that where reading instruction is currently at isn't where it needs to be. And this is not just coming from someone who has a background in education um, and has been trying to get change in education for years. It's coming from an individual who is severely dyslexic and really struggled learning how to read and was not able to get the appropriate reading instruction that I needed until my parents paid for it outside of the public school system. And then my family had a huge involvement locally and on an international level uh, through the International Dyslexia Association in order to try, try and get things changed over the decades. Now, um, we haven't seen the change that we were hoping for. and. Today, I have children in the school system, and a couple of them are struggling with reading. So, and I, you know, I've worked with clients over the years, and, you know, I'm still seeing some issues of concern. So I decided it was important to share this consensus on reading instruction to show that this isn't a bad and we're asking to change how reading instruction is taught within the school system. It is not trying to pick a a new idea of how to teach reading out of thin air. We are looking at what the research says, what has been tried and tested in various different classrooms across the globe, in different languages, and what these findings have told us about how we can help the little ones in our care and the big ones uh, and individuals who are learning English as an additional language or any uh, learning to read in any language for that matter, helping them learn to read because reading is a way that we share information across the globe. So it's important to understand that reading is arguably the most studied topic in the field of education. When we look at the data that's been collected over the decades, there has been an overall consensus about essential elements that are needed for effective reading instruction. Now, this research has been conducted across the globe in different languages by different institutions with different researchers leading it, designing it, analyzing it. So it's, again, not just a one-person idea of how things are. And in fact, we've even had various uh, countries 
look at this in more detail so if we can find a way to generalize the findings. Now, the first to do this on a large scale was the United States, and in the National Reading Panel was created to analyze the data. And at first, you know, they didn't actually understand how big of a bite they were taking off to chew. So they ended up having to create subcommittees and eventually we get the document called Teaching Children to Read, an evidence-based assessment of the scientific research literature on reading and its implications for reading instruction. Now, after the publication of this in published programs and, you know, the big buzzword was evidence-based this and evidence-based that and it got overused, oversold, and we need to be cautious of saying what evidence-based is because really it's it's a vague topic if you really look at it. Because if there is one study published, something can be based on the evidence from that study. Now, that's not a big enough evidence base for me to feel confident in what has been created and what is being sold because that was potentially one individual using a small sample and understanding what needed to be done. Now, when we're looking at the National Reading Panel's um, meta-analysis, and what that means is that they did a large search to find all sorts of research papers and had inclusion criteria. So they said, we're not just going to look at any study, it has to be of reasonable validity so that they're actually looking at what they said they're looking at and they have to measure it in a certain way. Now, this allowed them to come up with what is also commonly referred to as the big five. Now, we'll be going into those in a little bit more detail later on, uh, but right now they are phonological awareness. Phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. So based on this big analysis of all the research that was available, there was a consensus that reading instruction needed to include these five elements 23 years ago. And if we, we look back farther, we actually see it being around for longer, but we do have this one document that was you know, published and did go into a significant amount of detail about what we need for reading instruction. So then Australia said, hmm, was a good idea. Let's see if we can, what we find. And then they did a similar thing where they had uh, a committee that looked at the research and they came out in 2005 with the Roe Report that is titled Teaching Reading Report and Recommendations. So again, like the National Reading Panel, this was a document or this the, the task force for the authors of this was to look at what was out there in the research and come to conclusions about how we can best reach the students' needs and create better readers. 
Now you have to realize that this was done in response to national and international reading crises, where we saw that children were not reading at acceptable levels, and there were a vast majority of them that were illiterate, meaning that they couldn't read at a level that they needed to succeed in society. Now, the problem with this is it has several long-term implications aside from just not being able to read. It has negative effects on their self-esteem, puts them at risk for mental health issues, and underemployment, housing issues, and drug use. There are so many different negative consequences that are an outcome from failure to learn how to read. England then went on to do their own review. And in, in the title of their 2006 report, it was called the Independent Review of Teaching of Early Reading. So like the Australian report, they just didn't go on base what the U.S. did. They did their own study. They looked at their their own findings from the research. So they would have searched databases with different inclusionary criteria and then seen what, based on what they found, their authors, who are different authors than the other two papers, and tried to get an understanding of how we can support early readers in their development of teaching reading. So they focused their, their um, target to just looking at early reading instruction. Now, again, when you look at this report, we're seeing the same findings that are coming up from the 2000 National Reading Panel's publication and the 2005 publication from Australia saying that there are these common elements that need to be part of effective reading instruction if we want our students or, or individuals to become effective readers who can understand what they read at an age of a grade appropriate level. So uh this point, we have three papers coming up with the same solid recommendations and teasing things out a little bit more. This is where, uh, not the origin of the reading wars, but this is where it really started to pick up steam in social media. And we see, you know, that the two sides really battling it out. The people that feel the findings of these reports are very valid and we need to further explore them and understand how we can do things that much better. And the people that feel, you know, other methods of reading instruction are acceptable, important, and effective. And the, the problem is that both ways of teaching reading do teach some students how to read, and they do teach some students how to read quite effectively. But the number of students that's encompassed by some students in the one side, which is often referred to uh, originally as whole word, and then it went to whole language, understanding the importance of language in understanding what you read and then 
after the National Reading Panel's publication, where it talked about needing that balanced approach to reading instruction, it became balanced literacy. And the other side was sometimes referred to as the phonics side. But as we'll see uh, throughout this conversation, it's not just phonics. But to go back to the reports on reading instruction, there then was another report conducted by the United States that understood the importance that we have a large subset of students that aren't learning how to read in their home language. Now, at the time of this publication, they were called English language learners, and it was titled English language learners developing literacy in second language learners. Now, this was written by three authors, and it was done in the same manner, looking at effective reading instruction in English for students who have English as an additional language. Now, in today's um, research area and in many education systems, these are referred to multi-language learners, uh, recognizing that it could be a second, third, fourth, or who knows what language uh, the student is learning in. So we try to have a more inclusive um, way to identify these students. Now, the important thing about this 2009 article is that it recognized that the instructional strategies used for students who have English as a first language or their home language are effective for English language learners. So we aren't needing to apply a completely different approach to teaching reading in English in order to reach students who are learning English as an additional language. This is important because it means that we can streamline instructional strategies for students, recognizing that when we are teaching our pre-service teachers, uh, doing professional development for in-service teachers, we can recognize that the topics that we are covering are going to work for all of the students they are working with. Now, those four reports were excellent. And then more recently in Canada, which is where I reside, uh, there was a public inquiry by the Ontario Human Rights Commission called the Right to Read Public Inquiry, where it was looking at students with dyslexia and how they were not being provided access to appropriate reading instruction. So initially, this report or this uh, public inquiry was just looking at best practices for individuals with a specific learning disability in reading. However, as this research and literature review was being conducted, they realized that it was the same best practices for first language learners, additional language learners, multi-language learners, individuals with other neurodiversities, and understanding that, and they were able to put together a cohesive um, 
series of recommendations as to best practices for teaching reading and how changes could be made across various levels to have this working out in society and actually making the change from a curriculum that wasn't supporting or wasn't designed to support the most amount of students at once to one that was aligned with practices. This is something that has been looked at in detail, especially since the pandemic, uh, and how to do this. And we're recognizing that it is a big task. It can be done. It needs to be done. But recognizing that it needs to be done gradually over time, it's taking about five years to go from a balanced literacy curriculum to a curriculum that is in line with uh, is sometimes referred to the science of reading or structured language and literacy. What we're saying is that we want research, uh, best practices, evidence-based research to be in the classrooms where we have the general consensus from the scientific community, not just um, teachers that are doing research in the classroom, but from a variety of areas lead how our children are taught so we can get the most amount of success from the start. Now, another thing to understand is that the research on reading isn't just coming from faculties of education. There are various fields looking at how we teach reading and its effects on cognitive development. When we look at some of the cognitive neuroscience uh, research, we see that what we're finding from these consensuses or these reports on reading instruction also lines up with the understanding that we're getting from brain imaging studies. So with the recent advances in brain imaging technology, we are actually able to see what the brain is doing as it's learning to read, as it's reading in the um, brains of fluent readers who do really, really well and the brains of poor readers who don't do as well and seeing what the difference is. Now, it's reassuring to see that what the imaging studies seems to fall in line with what we're seeing in research. Now, the thing I want you to take away so far from this conversation is that there has been a lot of research and there has been a lot of money spent on this research. When we look at all of the research taken together, we recognize that the same elements consistently pop up as important aspects of reading instruction. Now, I want to take a few moments to talk about these in detail. And I like to consider these the essential elements. You'll notice that when I talk about them, I'm not just talking about five elements, those original ones brought forward by the National Reading Panel's um, 
publication, the phonological awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. I also discuss morphology. Morphology is something that we're learning more and more about, and we're having more effective instruction in morphological awareness. And as we do, we recognize its importance in reading instruction. So some of the newer research is including it. Some of the newer reports are discussing it in more detail. And it's important to understand it because it is something that hasn't been discussed at the same length as some of these others. So the first essential element is phonological awareness. And that's the awareness of the speech sounds in a spoken language. Now, it's not just the phonological awareness because there are various different elements that fall under the category of phonological awareness. When we're talking about word awareness, syllable awareness, rhyme awareness, all these other things, which are important aspects of phonological awareness, but they are not the ones that are most important for reading. And when we're looking at reading instruction, we have a small amount of time to get a lot of information into young learners as they're learning how to read. So it's important to include the elements of phonological awareness that are going to be the biggest bang for the buck. So if I put my focus on just a couple areas, I can have greater results for students. And once we see mastery of those skills, it's not something that we need to continue working on. So when we're looking at, you know, students in the four, five, six, and sometimes seven-year-old age, this is where we're seeing that development of the smaller set of skills considered phonemic awareness, and that's the smallest spoken sound in the language. In English, we have 44 phonemes, or between 40 and 44, depending on the dialect that you speak. And recognizing that these individual speech sounds are represented by letters in the English alphabet, a letter or combination of letters, um, is very important. And students don't always have a high level of phonemic awareness that they are conscious of until they begin formal reading instruction. If you weren't, if you didn't have an unconscious awareness of uh, phonemes, then you wouldn't be able to distinguish the difference between spoken words. If they were similar, if they were different, it would just be a stream of sounds and you couldn't distinguish one from the other. And if you just excuse me for a moment, I am going to try and get rid of the beeping. Um, and then we want students to develop phonemic awareness so that they can recognize the individual speech sounds as distinct units that are then used to help us distinguish between words. When we do this, this allows students to learn the difference between the sounds and how we can represent them by letters. So the, the, there are two main 
phonemic awareness activities that are most beneficial to students as they learn to read, and they are blending and segmenting phonemes. So if I were to segment a word into its phonemes, I would break it up into its individual speech sounds. So a word like pot would become p-a-t. Now, then I also want them to be able to go from p-a-t to smush those sounds together to get pot. The problem is this is kind of an abstract thing because when we stretch the sounds out or if we, if we look at an audio recording of words, you don't actually see the segregation between these sounds. So it's not something that we can just slow down an audio recording and they'll hear pot. We can stretch it out and go pot. But there is more to learn about uh, phonological awareness and phonemic awareness. Recognizing that a little bit of this goes a long way. And also students who have hearing impairments or specific learning disabilities in reading often have a weakness in phonemic awareness. So while these students require additional work with phonemic awareness instruction and intervention, the vast majority of our classroom students don't. So making sure that in the early years, they get anywhere between 18 to 20 hours of phonological awareness instruction, targeting skills such as blending and segmenting is great. But as we're doing that, we don't want to do it in isolation. Some of it will need to be in isolation. But when we look at even more of the research, we recognize that when it's combined with phonics instruction, it is even more effective. And understanding that we want to create readers. We don't want to create individuals who are master uh, phonemic awareness individuals. I mean, that is a, a definite asset. But the sooner that we can start introducing letters or what a more formal term is graphemes to the phonemic awareness, the better. Because in phonics what, which, instruction, what we're actually doing is teaching the association between a grapheme, which is a letter or group of letters that are used to represent one phoneme. So something like C says K for cat, that would be like a phonics uh, lesson. We are teaching that the grapheme C represents the phoneme. An example of that would be in the word cat. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the English language has up to 44 phonemes. Well, our English alphabet is borrowed from the Romans, and there are only 26 letters. Now there are more phonemes than graphemes available. So we have to double up on some letters where they represent more than one phoneme, such as in the example of C. It also says as in city. But there are some instances where two 
graphemes, such as the letters T and H, represent one phoneme. Actually, that wasn't a good example because TH represents two phonemes. It represents the V and the the voiced and voiceless sounds that we see in the words the and that and the. So we need to make sure that reading instruction helps individuals learn these sounds so that they understand what the letters they are coming across in written language represent. The next key element associated with reading, and I, I will be touching on phonics in a little bit more because we don't just want to teach phonics in a random order. We do want to teach it in uh, a set order. We want to make sure that everybody learns the appropriate letter sound correspondences or grapheme phoneme relationships and that they are taught in a logical order that build on each other so we can have students reading as quickly as possible. Vocabulary is essential. We need students to build their vocabulary quickly and efficiently. Now, the, the problem is there is no way that we can actually physically directly or use direct instruction. So teaching explicitly the meaning of all the words a student is going to need to know by the time that they graduate or even finish the year in school. We need to give them the strategies to figure out what words mean just through conversation and how they're reading them. But recognizing there are words that we do need to explicitly teach. It takes a trained person, an educator, to recognize how we can teach these to our students and what we can do to help teach them how to discover the meaning of words that they hear in conversation and recognize that this is actually something that they've been doing already their entire lives. Children do not come into this world having a full vocabulary. They learn it through exposure to the language. And that is what we've been seeing in that whole language balanced literacy camp is expecting that reading can be learned the same way. If you want to hear more of that, you can go back to the first episode of this podcast where I talk about how reading is not a natural process. In vocabulary instruction, we recognize that a way that we can help students with learning vocabulary more rapidly is by including morphology instruction. Now, morphology has to do with smaller chunks than a whole word, but larger chunks than a phoneme. So morphemes are smaller parts of words that typically convey meaning. In society, or sorry, in the English language, we take words from multiple different languages to form our own and recognize that in today's world, there are a lot of people creating their own words. Uh, one would be Beyonce creating the word bootylicious. Now, that is a word that you cannot 
get its full meaning from the morphemes alone. Um, but recognizing morphology does come into play. So what morphology means is that we're looking at the parts to help define what the whole means. The vast majority of English language can trace its uh, roots back to Greek and Latin and French and some of the Germanic languages in Europe. Now, in Greek and Latin, words were made up of parts. So the word uh, photography or um, photosynthesis, we see different common elements being used to build bigger words. When we look at these elements and put them together, we can see how you get the meaning of the word because it's purely taking them together. Now, an easy one would be looking at the word biology, which refers to the study of life. Now, ology refers to the study of and bi or bio refers to life. So that's how we get the word. Now, this is something that takes a, a lot of time uh, on the educator's part to really have a, a full understanding of it. There are a lot of great resources out there. And I do hope to do a deeper dive into morphology throughout this podcast. But recognizing when we teach students about morphology, we are really helping them out because the English language is a morphophonemic language. Now, what I want you to take away from that is we're seeing morpho referring to morphology and phonemic referring to phonemes. So our written language takes its cues from the morpheme and the sounds. This is why English is considered to be a very deep orthographic language because it's not transparent. We can, just can't sound out words and apply a one-to-one -one correspondence of the phoneme to the grapheme because meaning comes into play. And when we go to the meaning of the word, that trumps the sounding of the word when we're spelling it. This instruction will help us build better readers. It will help us build individuals who can go to other areas when they're trying to figure out a word's meaning, especially when we look at some of the more of the academic language, because the vast majority of academic language has Greek and Latin bases in them uh, and aspects in them. So using morphology does help us understand their meaning. And those are the trickier words we want individuals to learn how to uh, read and understand as they are reading. The next element that's important for us to understand is fluency. 
And I am referring to reading fluency where an individual can read a text at an appropriate rate and understand it, what they are reading as they are reading it and have it so it can be pleasurable for the listener at the same time. So fluency has three components and each of these three components needs to be addressed in order to create a fluent reader. So we need to have accuracy. So the individual is able to read the word accurately and not have to try and decode it or guess what the word is saying. They need to do so at an appropriate rate. So at the way in which it sounds in language and prosody refers to the expression that they are saying it. We don't want to sound like a 1980s computer robot voice and just reading it in that manner. We want it to sound like a a conversation that's interesting, that has a natural flow with appropriate pauses and breaks throughout it. Now, the, the final element is comprehension. Now, comprehension is is a very deep topic to discuss because it's not just a process that someone is going through as they read it's also the final product of reading and what we use to judge whether an individual can read at a satisfactory level is can they understand what they are reading and that is what is commonly referred to as reading comprehension we want individuals to not just read what they are saying. We want them to understand what they are saying, or sorry, understand what they are reading and be able to take new meaning and make new inferences from what they have read. Now, when it comes to teaching reading at any level, we are not going to see an equal uh, part of each of these elements. When we're looking at beginning readers or readers who are new to reading English, we need to have a higher focus on the uh, phonemic awareness when they're just learning the sounds of the English language. We need to have a focus on phonics so that they recognize how the letters on the page represents the sounds in the words We need them to have a grasp of morphology, understanding how different prefixes and suffixes change the meaning of words. We also need to build that vocabulary so that while they may not know every word that they are reading from their current vocabulary, they can use it to build meaning for new words. And I think this is really important when we look at understanding why some individuals struggle when they read, even though they can read the word, but they aren't understanding what they're reading because the vocabulary development may not make it so they actually understand what they're reading, but they have good strategies for actually saying the words. And those are often referred to as word callers. Now, when it comes to vocabulary, we want them to have a vocabulary that they understand what they're reading and that they can build as they read to help them understand what they are reading in the comprehension, but also to give them clues when it comes to reading fluency. Because 
not all text has underlining or bold or italic, the cues that the author might be giving for us to put emphasis on words. So we have to recognize that as we are reading to put the, you know, the impact where it's needed or emphasis that may not be given to us by the text or the punctuation within the text. When we are working with any age level, vocabulary needs to be a component. The amount needed will depend because as educators, we need to recognize that you have no possible way of explicitly teaching all the words the reader is going to come across. Morphology moves from basic with the beginning reader to more complex as readers get more acquainted with reading and more fluent in their reading, because as we read more and more complex words, we can understand deeper morphology and understand how to build words using morphology. This is great, and we need to recognize that we don't need individuals to master every single morpheme in the English language. I don't know that is really possible unless you are a linguist, uh, because they aren't as meaningful for all of them. And it's not going to be that you need to know absolutely every single one by heart in order to understand. You'll be able to infer meanings from other sources. Reading fluency is something that we work with across the grades. And it's important to recognize that fluent reading of one text or type of text will look different to fluent reading in another type of text. When we're reading prose, fiction, um, drama, those type of texts is going to be read very differently than we'd read a recipe from a cookbook or a scientific textbook, a, a historical book, because it's not having that same conversation with characters and the reader it's simply trying to convey meaning so we don't have this have the same expression and then finally comprehension is something that we're going to work on pretty much all the way through and teaching different comprehension strategies for the various type of texts and doing so appropriately for the level that we're teaching and the student that we are teaching. Here, again, the thing that I'm trying to get across is that not all of these aspects are going to show up in the same intensity in all of our curriculum. Phonological and phonemic awareness is something that we're only going to see in the early years unless there is a reason to teach it to an individual in more detail. It's going to be focused on students who are multi-language learners who are not fluent in the language they are speaking and don't have a good understanding of the sounds within the system still are heavily accented. Uh, it is helpful to talk to your school's speech and language pathologist if you are struggling in this area because it is something that they have expertise in. When we're looking at phonics, again, that's something that we're mainly focusing on in the primary grade levels, because once you've taught the grapheme phoneme correspondences, 
unless you are doing a, a, a spelling uh, component where you're working on a, a specific um, spelling pattern, then you're just going to be reviewing it, not explicitly teaching it at the same level, unless, again, you are working with a student who is struggling and needs uh, more detail in that. Vocabulary will be across the curriculum, across the grades, because we are constantly needing to add new words to our vocabulary. Morphology isn't as heavy in the first few years and increases in importance as we have more academic learning occurring, looking at science, mathematics, um, history, geography. Those are all components of the instruction that contain a lot of morphology within it. Reading fluency is something that we're going to work on all across recognizing that we can still work on reading fluency in the higher grades and even in university. We see this happen occur in dramatic programs all the time, uh, especially when we're looking at plays and theater and even poetry. Seeing the different ways that you can play with how you read the text will impact its meaning. And comprehension is important all throughout recognizing different strategies will be focused on at different levels, uh, going from just the surface meeting to deeper level of comprehension. Now, the big question is, we've known these elements for years, but what do we need to do to get it into practice? And there isn't a simple fix. I wish I had a magic wand and I could just tap and say, okay, everyone has the background knowledge that they need to know to use this type of instruction within their classroom. And all of the curriculums are aligned with it. Every school has the materials that they need to do it. That's just not the case. But we need to make sure that every developing reader gets this type of instruction if we want to ensure the biggest success. To do this, we need to make sure that the higher-ups and curriculum creators understand it. This year, we have seen a little bit of a shakeup in that a big name in the field that was very much balanced literacy has gone on sabbatical and uh, the institution that had her learning lab and uh, was standing behind her curriculum has now removed that support. So we are starting to see bigger changes in some of the uh, United States. Unfortunately, it is a very slow process in other parts of the world. And meanwhile, Australia and in England, we are seeing them making faster progress than the United States. Now, it's not just the higher ups and the curricular creators that need to understand the move towards this scientific process of teaching how to read. We also need to make sure that every current teacher and administrator receives the professional development in it so they understand the transition to it and what they need to do to help facilitate 
it happening within their schools and within their classrooms. Now, this is something that is going to be costly. It is going to be time-consuming. As I mentioned before, we're seeing that this is taking uh, about five years for a lot of schools to do this, sometimes longer, depending on the support available. One thing that we need to recognize is that every year we have a new crop of teachers coming through teacher education programs. It is essential that these programs align their pre-service teaching instruction to how to teach reading in this manner in order to have it. So all of our new teachers are going into the profession with this knowledge because otherwise it's going to take 40 plus years to have all the teachers have this knowledge because, you know, typical professional career can be anywhere of 30, 40 years if we don't have that high burnout rate. I did want to go back and review why this isn't so such an important concept to discuss. And that is that learning to read isn't easy for everyone. When we look at the research, we see that five to 10% of individuals learn how to read with very little effort. Now, for those that learn how to read with this minimal effort or what appears to me this minimal effort, they are actually grasping the same concepts that the struggling readers need to get the instruction in. They just do it very quickly and you can't recognize what has happened within the home. Then we have it so that 30 to 35% of individuals will learn how to read regardless of the type of instruction that they receive. So when we see statistics about, you know, 40% of readers are doing so well with this program, that's not a huge vote of confidence for the program because those 40% of individuals would have learned regardless of how they were taught, as long as they had the exposure to language. Now, 35% of individuals are going to need explicit systematic code-based instruction. And that's what I've been alluding to here, and I'll go into a little bit more detail in a minute. So that brings us to about 75% of students. But then we need to recognize that there's 10 to 15% of individuals who are going to require so much more in order to become fluent readers. Now, when we're talking about systematic instruction, we're talking about instruction that is purposely laid out in a logical manner so that the students get every single comment or concept that they need in order to become a proficient reader done in a sequential manner and not ad hoc. So, oh, it's Tuesday. Let's learn about this letter. No, or let's do one letter a week for the entire kindergarten year. And then three quarters of the way through, we'll have all letters covered. No, that's not going to get the most amount of students reading at an appropriate level with the least amount of instruction. We also see students needing 
explicit instruction. And this is where we are directly teaching them the new school so they don't have to discover or infer what they are expected to learn in the lesson. This is where when we look at reading programs that have been popular in the past and in some places still are popular, we're telling the kids to look at context, look at pictures, guess what they're reading. This isn't going to give those at-risk readers and those readers that need a little bit more when it comes to instruction to learn what they need to learn to become expert readers. We need to give it so they have it to a level of proficiency. Now, we also need to acknowledge that as I showed you or discussed earlier, that we have a different level of ease of learning how to read. We need to recognize that we need to provide differentiated instruction in our classrooms in order to support all learners. We're not just teaching to the top or teaching to the bottom or teaching to the middle and hoping that everybody comes out okay. We need to recognize that every learner has a reason for being in that classroom and we need to make sure that those individual learning needs are met. In order to do this, we need to have a multi-tiered system of support so that our instructional framework allows every student in the classroom to learn. The best way that we can do this is having some form of universal screening for all students so we are not guessing where they are at and trying to figure out if our instruction is good enough. We are actually using data to inform how we teach, who we teach, and what we teach them. This means that our whole class lessons can be more effective. It means when we're working with students in small groups, we are targeting a skill that those specific students need to focus on and recognizing that there are students that are going to need a significant amount of support in order to succeed. Research has shown us that we can get over 95% of our students reading at an age-appropriate level with this type of instruction, and we need to do a better job at doing so. You may remember, or you may be wondering what you should do next in order to continue your learning on topics such as this. The first step would be following us on social media. So the Garforth Education Podcast doesn't have their own social media accounts. We are part of Garforth Education. So if you go to any of the Garforth Education social media accounts, you will be getting information about the Garforth Education Podcast as well. Please like, share, comment, subscribe, and ask questions on these platforms, as well as going to our website, www.garfortheducation.com slash podcast. Now, there are going to be listeners who want to know more, and I hope that I've inspired many to look 
for more information. But if you're specifically wanting to know more about reading development and what we can do to facilitate instruction for all of our students, then I suggest you look at my course, Reading Development Explained. This is an asynchronous online course available at garfortheducation.com, and it has been credentialed by Credentials Unlimited. This is a great way for you to learn about more detail of some of the topics I spoke about today, understanding how to use them in your classroom, and where to look for further. Now, in next week's episode, I'm going to shift away from the reading focus and focus more on our students who have exceptionalities. I want to focus on understanding the psychoeducational assessment. These are a type of assessment that looks at the mental processes involved in learning, and they are used to help us understand why a particular individual in the classroom is struggling to learn. This episode is going to focus on what they are and how can we can learn from them. Now, this episode isn't just dedicated to teachers. It's also dedicated to the parents of students that struggle. It start. It will be recorded next Monday at 5 p.m., and that is October 2nd. October is what I like to call a disability awareness month. And I will hopefully add some extra podcasts uh, that are not listed on our regular schedule uh, to help address some of the disabilities that are highlighted during disability awareness month. They are learning disabilities, dyslexia, ADHD, autism, and Down syndrome. I feel like there's a couple more, uh, but they can't come to mind at the moment. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope to see you in the next episode.